0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And this is the time of the week uh, where we have a conversation, a chance to delve deep with uh, figures who have already thought widely about some of the many themes we kind of try and navigate together uh, in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And today is certainly one of those days because in recent times uh, on this podcast, we've explored how the heck you find the funding for the demands for the NHS and the structuring that makes sense. We've looked at the whole nightmarish, surreal pre-election tax and spend debate that Labour have to navigate around, and we've linked that at times to how you deal with social care. And uh, in a competitive field, I would argue that one of the more grotesque themes of the Boris Johnson regime was in July 2019, when he stood out of number 10 for the first time as prime minister, always a huge moment in a prime minister's history, and pretended he had a plan for social care when he didn't, no doubt raising hopes of people that were quickly dashed. And then we had the bonkers sequence where when he realised he didn't have a plan, he raised or claimed to be raising a social care levy but a lot of that money was not going to go on social care. And then the social care levy was scrapped. And that sequence is one of many when it comes to social care. There's something about this topic which um, governments have failed to grapple with. We remember the Theresa May 2017 election campaign pledge to deal with social care, and it just got her into trouble. Uh, Labour have gone into elections with plans. There's been the Andrew Dillnot proposition. Anyway, this week, the Fabian Society has come up with its plan for a national care service, its route map, if you like. Um, And on one level, the timing is perfect Uh, uh, on the eve, perhaps, of a change of government with a Labour government. On the other hand, its timing is thorny because of all the issues we've explored about tax and spend and some of the complexities around how you fund and structure a national care service. So it's fantastic uh, that Andy Harrop, the General Secretary of the Fabian Society, is joining us so we can really explore some of these themes. Andy, thanks so much for uh, coming along. I know you've got a busy schedule uh, as the report has been published uh, in recent days. Um, Could I begin by asking you, the context. Um, It's been welcomed by Labour Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting, um, and presumably it has been a sort of dance between him, the Labour Party, and and your desire as a think tank to say as much as you possibly can within that context.
1: Yes, so it's been an interesting process because it started with a Labour Party policy commitment that's actually been on and off sort of in the mix since the, ever since the 2010 election, which is to build a national care service. But to be honest, no one's ever really done the detailed thinking about what is a national care service and how would you go about putting it in place in a staged way of gradual reform. Um, and about a year ago, uh, Wes Street, the Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary, and the Unison Trade Union asked the Fabian Society to really sort of drill into that detail that no one had done before, and we've obviously talked over that period to Wes and his team and other Labour people, but this is ultimately an independent piece of research from the Fabian Society, so to the Labour Party. So it's not Labour Party policy, but it's giving them, you know, one set of options of how they could put their commitment into place and everything you've just said about the uh, sort of the public spending context and the sort of you know the pre-election games the two parties have to play with each other on spending commitments and how what tax would you raise to pay for something all of that is you know a massive constraint in what a politician can sign up to before an election so we know in publishing this this package that most of it won't be in a Labour Party election uh, election manifesto, that it will be good ideas for them if they get elected to then pick up. But there are some elements which we can talk about, which they've actually already said that they want to put in place. So they're, they're... in their manifesto, thinking about what are the early reforms they could, you know, sort of introduce so that they're showing a direction of travel, even though they'd never be able to, before an election, afford the full package of changes that we suggest.
0: Yeah, I mean, West Street has already responded by thanking you for for it, but making clear, again, in this sort of mad tax and spend pre-election period, that Labour are going to say nothing, Uh, without saying precisely where the money's going to go. You know, all the familiar things that they have to do or think they have to do. Could I ask you... Jim, you mentioned 2010 and i remember that and i think that's the first
1: time was it gordon brown or or i can't remember who, who it was andy burnham and gordon brown together really and it was i think it first started to be talked about sort of around 2009 and then there was you know a white paper and a, a manifesto commitment in that 2010 election and you probably remember there was a, a big social care argument at that election too and the the death tax which was used to you know by cameron against gordon brown so there's just so much history in this debate of yeah. Like sort of Imploding when it, when you get into political contact, and, and
0: and then in 2017 it was the dementia tax with Theresa May's proposition, yeah. and and it clearly cost her in that election. Why do you think this area has been so problematic for both parties? Both parties theoretically want it. Sometimes come up with a proposition, as you say, 2010. Theresa May in 2017, Johnson haphazardly uh, during his time as Prime Minister, and it always disappears. Uh, and yet, you know, there's a whole range of people who ache for this national care service. It's not just the elderly, although they tend to vote, um, but the, the, the children of the elderly who worry. You know, it. it why does it just melt away with every attempt so far? And
1: obviously, we're then going to come on to explore your propositions. Well, we should and we should also remember that about half of the money in social care is actually spent on people with long term disabilities over the course of their life. So it's important to remember, you know, there's a because of the wonders of medical science, there's actually far more people with severe lifelong disability um, we need support as well. So I think there's two reasons why this debate has got stuck so many times. The first is that ever since Labour was in office, every time adult social care reform is discussed – for some reason, politicians feel they need to discuss revenue raising alongside it. And we don't do that with other public services when we're talking about how much to spend on them or how much reform they need. So if you think about schools or the NHS or the state pension or childcare, you know, we have a discussion about how much money they need, but there's not a, a necessary parallel discussion of you know what tax will you raise to pay for that. And for some reason, people have, um, on both sides of the political divide, have felt they need to have a discussion, which is often about how much more you ask rich, older people to pay. And that is just, you know, that's a very difficult subject on its own. And it just sort of gets in the way of any progress on social care funding. It also disguises sort of where the realities of the financial pressures on social care are. We always end up Discussing how do you give a bit more financial support to older people with quite a lot of money who at the moment are you know they, if if you have a very long term disability and you have money you know you you do get a raw deal but actually that's a small amount of the extra money this system needs you know it needs an awful lot more because of um, of demographic change so the rising number of people who are going to need support in future decades and it also is just massively. Under delivering on the promises that are meant to be there in the system at the moment, it it can be incredibly hard to persuade your council to provide support, even if you're on a low income and you are obviously disabled. So there's so much wrong with the system that isn't the sort of the bit that the politicians have tended to talk about, which is about you know fairly affluent older people being forced to sell their home, and and that discussion. You know, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's it's just one small dimension of the social care debate, and it's completely sort of taken over the whole debate. And that's the second reason why I think this keeps getting stuck: that we don't talk about what's the overall offer, and think about service reform. You know what it is, care is there to do, rather than who pays what. Uh, I'll come on to your proposals,
0: but but in general, some of the specifics, but in general terms. They are ambitious. Uh, This will be a universal service. Um, And uh, there are elements to it. Your focus on staff retention, staff recruitment, um, and quality staff, quality employment, and so on. I mean, I know it's a statement of the obvious, but it's going to cost quite a lot of money. Um, Now, before an election, this is all taboo. But isn't there a danger that this is such a big issue? Uh, the political will is just never there to find the money for a universal national care service. Sorry, we will come on to the things you have talked about. But this is the great elephant in the room. And, and, and I fully understand why. And we talk about it on this podcast all the time. It's mad tax and spend debate. But even reading your report, I thought, oh, yeah, that's great, but it will be expensive. And that's great, but it will be expensive. I know you stress it's over 10 years and you could start without spending. But you have to have the will, don't you, to find the money for
1: your vision. Yes, you do. Uh, But I think it's worth saying that any politician is going to have to spend a lot more money on adult social care honestly, just to stop the system falling over um, because of the rising numbers of people who need support and because of the really desperate position the service is in at the moment. Um, And that starts with workforce. So there is a a, a huge recruitment and retention crisis in adult social care at the moment. There are 165,000 vacancies. And, you know, just to be able to deliver the service that exists at, at the present, any politician after the next election is going to have to look at paying conditions. And the argument that we make is, yes, more money is needed, but also you need a long-term plan and a long-term commitment to keep on spending more so that we can build up the capacity over time and and, and offer people more. I think where there's a divide between the, the parties is that we advise the Labour Party to genuinely create a comprehensive service that's for everyone and is run by the public sector rather than having a sort of a a market with lots of uh, private provision. Uh, We're saying that it should all feel like you're inside a public service. You know, however much money you've got, whoever's actually providing it sort of as the frontline service, you should feel like it's a public offer. And that makes it, I think, quite different From what the Conservatives would sort of conceive of as a social care offer. That's not just about money, though quite a lot of that is about how it's all organized. Where the money will come in is I've talked about the overall numbers, but it's also making sure that people can get support sooner than they do. There's this covert rationing that happens at the moment, and inevitably that would cost more money. And to make sure that we pay staff properly. Um, You know, what we talk about in this report is to try to, over time, have a parallel with how NHS workforce are treated. So in the NHS, you have um, pay bans and terms and conditions which are negotiated by trade unions. On the adult social care side, you have people who are often doing very, very similar work. You know, the difference between a, a social care worker and a healthcare assistant, for example... But they don't have those pay bands, the structure, the career development that you have on the NHS side. And I think the ambition, as I say, over time, because it is expensive, should be that you know people doing the same sort of work in social care and healthcare get the same sort of reward and support and recognition.
0: Okay, so let's explore. Um, uh, The Theresa May proposition, of course, was targeted, wasn't it? It wasn't universal. Basically, people who got dementia one way or another would have to pay for it. Yours is universal and and, and therefore has a kind of parallel with the uh, NHS. It's a national care service. Um, So what do you say to the argument that given the scarcity of resources to the point where, as you say, it's not even wise to explore precisely where the money will come from, that there isn't a case for a
1: more targeted approach? So we say that Everyone should be offered support, but we don't necessarily think that that can be free support or even that charging massively improves from where it is right now in the short term. It's more important that everyone is helped by um, this National Care Service to get support they need. And unfortunately for the time being, if you have the money, you would still have to pay a contribution towards it. And that's for exactly the reason that you're talking about, Steve, that um, being fiscally realistic, uh, moving straight to a system where you have free care which has been an ambition of many people for for years and years has been discussed in Scotland and Wales, as well as as in England, which we're talking about here. I just don't think that that is realistic in the short term, uh, because of the overall fiscal position, but also because of all these other pressures on social care. So that the fact that the numbers of people needing support needs to grow, and the fact that we have to make sure that we properly reward the workforce, just to have a workforce that's large enough and well or well-trained enough to do the job means that we can't also quickly move to, to cheaper care. Yeah, and that, of course, is one of the differences with the NHS. There will still yeah. be payment in the system, yeah.
0: even though it's a national care service. In yes. terms of staff, and there's a big focus, uh, and... and it just shows, again, how reckless the Boris Johnson proposition was. We just hadn't thought through any of this. Yeah. Um, there is staff shortage now, as you make clear in the report, to the point where you say just to keep afloat, a government's going to have to do quite a lot. And the demand is growing with an elderly population. So where is the staff going to come from? And uh, the quality of training required. So it's a high-quality national care service. Where, where Where
1: is all that going to happen? So this is where the the whole idea of this new partnership, so it's sort of the state and the independent providers working together, you know, in in each local community on the price of care. So they agree something that's fair for both sides, but also sort of together managing the local workforce, which is what happens increasingly on the NHS with all the NHS bodies. It doesn't happen in social care. And what we basically want is... A fair set of terms and conditions so so better pay sort of if you like for the entry-level jobs but also a sense that this is a career where there's investment and good training and you can move on into more specialized roles so basically having a sort of a structure around social care so it's sort of partly people will work in the sector you know because of vocation but they won't if they just feel that the pay is is massively below uh, what they could earn somewhere else. But also they won't if they don't feel there's job security and a sort of sense of structure um, and, you know, development in them as people. So that's all got to come in. And in fairness to the Labour Party, they are starting to say good things in this direction. So they've already said that there would be a sector wide fair pay agreement which would basically be a a collectively bargained agreement between the unions the employers who are these independent providers and and the government as paying for it um now i expect that when that would first be introduced it would be quite modest because of the costs but it's something you could then build on over time
0: Now, as you say, you sort of outlined your vision of the structure, the the centre providing uh, overall direction and resources, local authorities, and the independent providers. Um, How will that work in the sense that, I mean, there are independent providers now who charge an absolute fortune? care. Will they be able to continue to do so? Will it be very regulated as a sector um, so they won't be able to charge as much? Um, How will that... It's always complicated, isn't it? In any of these, you look at the railways. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And and, and just to rewind
1: to sort of the changes happening in in Labour Party thinking since Jeremy Corbyn and the the 2019 election. So at that stage, Labour was committed to a national care service and, and people around Jeremy Corbyn, when they said that, they meant free at the point of need. And they meant entirely provided by the public sector, not by independent providers. We've already talked about the unaffordability of moving quickly to free services. But it's also just not viable to have a vision of the public sector delivering this care, because at the moment, 90% of care services are delivered by independent providers either for-profit companies or, or for uh, like non-profit organizations like charities and housing associations. And in, just in terms of the viability, the sort of continuity of the system, uh, you would need to carry on with that independent model. So what we basically talk about in this report is a deal between the government and those independent providers that they will get a fair price for what they do. Because often at the moment, they are really underfunded for the difficult work that they're doing. But at the same time, they would be part of a public service. They would have much tougher expectations on them. They would need to provide the care and quality that was specified by the local council. They would need to employ their workforce on national terms and conditions, as I said earlier, a bit like uh, they were in the NHS. And we'd also envisage financial rules so that you couldn't have these sort of risky private equity funded care operators sort of like working in the care sector as a bit of a uh, a speculative play on the property price of the care homes. And then there's been lots of stories about underhand tax avoidance or some manipulative tax practices by some of these providers as well. So we basically think that there should be financial regulation of anyone who's operating in the adult care system, particularly anyone who's getting public money. In exchange for public money, the government should be entitled to know this financial probity.
0: Now, you, as we said at the very beginning, have discussed this um, all the way along with uh, Wes Streety and others in the Labour Party. Uh, You've also said there are some things they can pluck from it early on to convey a sense of direction, a sense of travel, Uh, which raises two questions. Do you think they will? And there will be uh, early moves. And are you hopeful obviously you you want it to happen but are you hopeful that if once they have leapt over the obstacles of the pre-election tax and spend debate your 10-year outline will be followed by West Streeting or whoever is in government for much of that time I mean one of the problems is that people get moved around all the time but is from your conversations do you dare to be genuinely hopeful that in 10 years time there will be a national care service, this much talked about but never delivered theme of British politics.
1: So the Labour Party has already said it wants to build a national care service over time. The, the, the risk is that that could be a slogan rather than a genuine transformation. So you know, having a detailed blueprint here it makes it much easier for a political party because at least they've got some concrete plans and they they can, you know, they can finesse them and they can reject parts of it. But it's so much better to have, you know, a very clear blueprint for a party to engage with rather than just, you know, sort of some words on a page without, um, you know, any detail behind it. Um, I think you you talk about the politics of the pre-election public spending. But actually, I think that, underlying economics are just as important. You know, the constraint on Labour at the moment is to win an election and, you know, they get attacked on spending. But actually, if they win, it will then be about, is the economy growing, are wages growing and are tax receipts growing? And some of this, you know, the scale of ambition in that proposal would only be possible if the tax take is starting to grow you know that we haven't got another period of we've already had 15 years of stagnant wages um you know is there more money in the system overall and i think the 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 bit that this links to so is there more money and then can you make adult care a priority within the mix of all those other things that um we know that an incoming Labour government would want to spend money on. And I think the idea of a national care service creates a sense of ambition and also an accountability. You know, it sort of basically says, the buck stops with a minister. You know, for too long, uh, national government has been able to sort of pass this off to local councils as as their responsibility, not, not a national minister's responsibility. And that's one of the reasons why we've got into such a terrible state of affairs at the moment with social care. And going back to your question about whether, you know, so what are the prospects in the short run for some of this to be elected? I mean, I think, you know, I think we said at the start that this project was done in partnership with Unison, the big trade union. And of course, they're an affiliate of the Labour Party. So one of the questions here is is that sort of traditional relationship between the unions and the, the Labour Party of, you know, is this an area where Affiliated unions really say this is a priority for us, and you know what? What? How much further can you go to the Labour Party on on this particular issue?
0: What do you think uh, more widely about um, the current Labour leadership and think tanks and so on? I had I interviewed Neil Lawson from Compass uh, a couple of months ago, and he said, um, and it was sort of true actually in a curious way that in the build-up to ninety-seven there was a really quite exciting and buzzing relationship between the think tanks like the Fabian Society, IPPR, and the leadership, even though it was a very controlling uh, leadership and cautious in many ways. And he said that wasn't the case here uh, in the build-up to the next election. Uh, What's your sense of the dance between organizations like the Fabian Society, which of course is directly connected to Labour, um, and and other equivalents and the current
1: leadership. So the Fabians have an extremely strong relationship with the leadership, and I think there are you know other similar centre-left think tanks do as well, both in cases like this where we're explicitly asked to do some thinking for the party, but also just that general sort of programme of work, which you know has had quite a lot of traction. There are lots of examples of ideas the Fabians have come up with that have then become party policy. Um I think the contrast I'd make though is is with the right wing think tank scene, which is just much, much bigger than the left wing think tank world and i uh, for all the sort of issues we know about about money in politics so there's just an awful lot more money on the right than the left so the big challenge is that there just aren't that many policy outfits close to the labor party coming up with um lots of new thinking so you know uh, the fabian society is is one of three or four similar organizations but you know really there's not enough sort of if you like shadow government capacity, sort of near the Labour Party to come up with detailed plans on sort of every issue they might want an idea. So there are some areas where Labour's doing very well in terms of you know fleshing out detailed ideas ready to go for the first year of a new government. And you know you could talk about their plans for green investment or for labour market regulation. But there are lots of other areas where they just don't have the capacity either inside the party or. The sort of think tank scene around to be ready to go with lots of immediately implementable ideas.
0: I mean, this has obviously been a big project, and if implemented, will be of huge practical significance in the coming years i remember in the build-up to 97 it just shows again in a way do you remember uh, it was under michael jacobs the famous society they did a big thing on tax i don't think it thrilled yep. gordon brown who was chef, it was, was, it was chef.
1: actually that was once labour was already in power that oh, piece was it but they mm. were
0: in power oh, That's and, safe and, and terrain. it was
1: around the time of the 2001 election and led to gordon brown then raising national insurance to pay for the NHS. So it was sort of like it was pitch rolling from a think tank. It's very much the role that we play today while Labour is in opposition. So um,
0: there's another year at least until the election. It's still a long way off. What what plans have you got now this report is complete?
1: So the next big thing we're bringing out is on regional inequality. So basically it's, it's what should Labour's alternative to levelling up look like, uh, mainly talking to Lisa Nandy, the the shadow levelling up secretary, but also actually across all of government. And again, it's an issue where Labour's made lots of good noises, particularly around devolution in England. But uh, eventually it has to sort of decide how radical it wants to be so the sort of ideas that we're going to be proposing to the party are saying that if you want proper devolution on the scale the Tories are given to greater Manchester and Birmingham you're going to have a, have a different way of running the whole of government you're going to have to have sort of basically a devolved economic spending budget um, and you know that's a big idea it would rewire how you know, the treasury works, how central government and local government work. And the challenge of when think tanks propose those sorts of ideas is sort of like, you know, they're usually ways of explaining to the party what it needs to do to achieve the ambitions it's already set out for itself. And at that point, you sort of see, you know, does the rubber hit the road? Are they really able to do that? And often it's going to be things they can only really sign up to after an election rather than make sort of either big financial commitments or big structural change of government commitments um, before an election
0: it'll be fascinating to see what you come up with because i suppose you're in a better place to do it than within the shadow cabinet, where there are inevitable tensions aren't there I mean, we've interviewed lisa and andy on this podcast and she envisages what she called to me the biggest transfer of power from the center uh in uh, modern times but as you suggest it's the how and also yeah. the treasury of course uh tends to want to control every penny, fair enough, you know, when resources are tight. But what you envisage is a sort of devolution of... The budgets in a way that they then lose control,
1: (laughs) and that is the whole point of devolution. You know, at the moment we have this sort of managerial approach where the treasury is sort of doing deals with individual places, but you know, you can't have that for the whole of England. If we, if the left genuinely wants devolution, I think there is a Keir Starmer person is very committed in principle, but the implications of that are that there is less power at the centre and that the resource flows down to. Those local decision makers the new regional mayors.
0: Yeah, and and yet they seem so worked up about Andy Burnham, for example. You you know what I mean? At the centre, they get irritated and annoyed by him when he says things differently to them. And that will be just a mere kind of little tiddly marginal thing compared to him, say, deciding to spend money in ways that they might not approve but have to do it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the logic is it's the North that decides what transport in the North looks like, rather than having to go with a begging bowl to the Treasury. And this is exactly how other countries all across the rich world work. You know, there's sort of like Germany or France or states in federal countries like Australia and the United States. It's just so alien for the UK or for England, I should say. And we've just got this not invented here culture that, you know, we're very insular in our policy debates. We, you know, can't imagine it being different from how it's always been in the UK. But actually, on a lot of areas, uh, we're the outlier and we should be looking at what other countries have been doing very well for years and decades.
0: Finally, could we return to some of the themes of your report very quickly? Because we've been talking for quite some time. Uh, One of the things we debated about the NHS was uh, the merits or otherwise of co-payments. And um, we got some fantastic contributions from people saying it would be a disaster. But others from, I don't know, Germany, Belgium, arguing it works well and you get a better service in effect for your vision of a national care service you are envisaging co-payments really aren't you could could it be applied more widely
1: so i've never been persuaded by the argument for co-payments in the nhs and basically it's a social justice argument about turning away people who will only ask for support from the nhs when they uh, know it's going to be free um, and linked to that the sort of idea that this is a comprehensive universal service for everyone and and you know it, it stood the test of time in terms of government um, you know sort of binding the public to the values of the NHS and it being there for everyone um, if you started having co-payments you know in theory it would be sort of in exchange for less tax but actually the most efficient way of of funding a big national service is through collective taxation rather than you know the inefficiency of lots of little payments so that's the for the nhs but actually it depends where you start from in social care we start from a totally different place where you've got charging in the moment and we would like to see over time it become more affordable less charging but not to jump to a point where it's free um you know for everyone all the time and there's also this issue of you know what what should your everyday living costs be? You know, say that you live in a care home. Now, if you were living in your own home, you might still be paying rent. You'd definitely be paying all your bills and how much food costs and whatever. So I think it's totally reasonable that... um, that in social care, that sort of expense should always be paid for, you know, by the individual. Even if the sort of the support and the, the help you need to live independently um, might, in time, be something that was free or much, much cheaper than it is now.
0: Well, Annie, thanks so much indeed for giving up your time. And uh, I know we'll get lots of uh, responses about this. Should Labour say more now, do more now? What do you think of a national care service uh, developing over the coming decade? Universal, but not universal free at the point of use um, and with the independent providers in a relationship with local authorities and central government among the many propositions. It's a detailed report. Thanks so much for coming in, Andy. Thank you all for listening and say much to reflect on in our discussion here. I know some of you will do that as you are running or drinking whiskey or baking bread. So let's get together very soon to make sense of everything, not just this. Uh, Thank you for listening. Bye.